Hello, everybody, and welcome or welcome back to Addicted to Recovery, the interactive memoir. I'm Tara Boyce, treatment center veteran, and you could say rehab junkie, which is actually apparently a home renovation reality TV show. I really got my hopes up when I saw the title, and then I watched a bit, and I was thinking, why are all these addicts breaking down walls and talking about open concepts? And Oh. <laughs> But speaking of hoping that something about rehab will be entertaining, this is the episode where I finally go to rehab for the first time, and it's really not anything like movies about rehab or even other books I've read about rehab. It's not filled with zany characters and dramatic moments. There's a lot of just me trying to follow a lot of rules and being sort of sad and confused and isolating emotionally, even though I wasn't allowed to isolate physically, but more on that later. And yes, I realize I forgot to mention this is a podcast in which I chronicle my journey with alcoholism and the surrounding themes, emotions, events, and I try to get you to join in on that conversation, and you can do that by shooting me an email at interactivememoir at gmail.com. You can join the Facebook group, and I'll link to those things in the show notes. And I just wanted to say, for those who have been part of that conversation, either privately or publicly, really a heartfelt thank you so much. It's really what keeps me incentivized to keep doing this, even when it's hard. And it's not always hard in the ways that I think a lot of people would assume, like emotionally triggering, though it can be that, but it's often hard to tell a story about a person I don't like very much who also happens to be a past incarnation of me, while still trying to have some compassion for that former self. And it's also tricky in that I don't know how well I'm actually remembering things, and I don't want to sensationalize, especially something like rehab. The books and movies, especially that 28 Days movie, give you the impression that these types of things are really exciting. And maybe I just wasn't a very cool addict in a lot of ways, but for me, being in active addiction and also being in rehab were generally marked by a lot of Desperation and repetition. My very first rehab is particularly tricky because even though it's my current self that's reporting and remembering, it's my past self that did experience and process and categorize the whole experience and was the filter for what I believed to be true. And I continued to tell myself a story over and over about how awful that experience was. I'm sure in many ways to rationalize why it didn't cure me and why I continued drinking, but I think also because it did feel awful at the time. Often when I externalized my misery in one way or another, now I can look back and say, yeah, well, a lot of that was more of a me thing. Yet with this rehab, I still look back and think, you know, that was pretty awful. And of course, my participation style, as you will see, didn't help matters, but the whole structure and philosophy of the center, I think, was also genuinely hostile to my chances of recovery at the time. For the most part, I don't think the right or wrong 
rehab, counselor, therapy technique, meal plan, whatever, will be the deciding factor in whether someone stays sober for any length of time afterwards, because what happens afterwards is far more crucial. Someone's social structure, their mental health, their real feelings about sobriety at the time. I know when I went in, my biggest fear wasn't that it wouldn't work. My biggest fear was that it would. I thought there was going to be some sort of witchcraft and I would be rendered physically incapable of drinking again, if only. But that does say a lot about what I was bringing to the table in terms of my own resistance to recovery. I just really want to clarify that it's not my intention to slander Portage, my first rehab, as much as I did have a pretty unpleasant experience there, but it was an experience that was biased by my own emotional state. I've also heard they've chilled out quite a bit since my time there. Portage is also a government-subsidized rehab in Canada, and it has multiple locations, and they probably all differ in various ways, and I would never want to dissuade anyone from getting help. I stayed there for three months. Was I miserable for the whole time? Pretty much. Was I also sober the whole time? Yeah. Yeah, For many of the residents there, being at Portage meant that they weren't on the streets. Some of them were away from abusive relationships. Some of them were out of prison. And many were probably just not dead. And that's not trivial. Many of my objections were, in perspective, pretty trivial. Maybe all the ways it was a bad fit for me are exactly the same ways it would be what someone else really needs. That being said, though, not everyone gets 12-plus shots at recovery like I did. A lot of people don't even get one, so... If you are in a place that's supposed to help, but isn't helping, or a program of recovery that just really doesn't resonate with you, or a community that makes you feel bad about yourself, there's no harm in investigating what other options are available to you, but do give it some time, because everyone feels worse until they start to feel better, but had I known, after a month there, that Not every rehab was militant, confrontational, and in many respects had the inmates running the asylum. I would have got on a waiting list for somewhere else. And I should have done my own damn research in the first place, really. So this'll be part one of two because I can't cram all the fun into one episode. But first, previously, on Addicted to Recovery... My grandfather's death and my own inability to be supportive or useful or to really have any feelings that weren't about alcohol makes me consider that I wasn't as functional as I thought I was. Even though I'm in many ways still loving university party culture, I agree to go to rehab. And so I bring you This Isn't at All Like the Movies, Part 1. After only a few days in long-term inpatient rehab, I was already ready to bolt. It wasn't at all like the movies. This was partially due to my skewed expectations. 
I romantically assumed that rehab was a delightful tea house of tortured artists who would gather their heavy hearts together debating existential philosophy and comparing poetry. I'd constructed a vision of a kind of creative retreat, surrounded by people like the ones who wrote the addiction and mental illness memoirs I so cherished. I imagined we would huddle together on a couch, near a fireplace after curfew, risking reprimand because we must, oh, we absolutely must, continue our esoteric forays into the deep cellars of the soul. I very quickly found out that I was the only one with such illusions and pretensions. The people there were a sampling of all walks of life, but who generally had a much harder life than my own, several having been involved in sex work to support their addiction, many with severe legal consequences, and almost all from a far less stable and financially secure environment than my own. We were asked to refer to our housemates as our family, and I quickly started to feel like the black sheep, ironically because I had a less colorful report card of dysfunction. I felt completely delegitimized by my suburban background and the fact that I was just an alcoholic, never mind that alcohol is responsible for more deaths than all other drugs. I knew nothing of crack dens or shooting up in back alleys, after-hours culture, custody battles, or violent drug dealers. I felt stunningly uncool and embarrassed with how concerned I was with feeling uncool. I was intimidated by my rehab mate's misadventures. There was a woman there on her 16th rehab, which perplexed me because... I had actually believed that when you finally surrendered to be locked up for six months, the agreement was that you would be fixed. I had been terrified of the prospect of walking through this portal of sorcery and being rendered forever unable to drink again. But this repeat offender made me consider that my results might have something more to do with my participation. Now, this was trickier because I resented almost everything the program had to offer. Portage's structure was modeled after a program of behavioral modification that was historically employed for opioid-addicted war veterans. Having been soldiers, these individuals were accustomed to structure, a chain of command, and ego-deflating tactics, and may have found these devices easy to adapt to even comforting. However, for a ragtag group of female addict civilians, the structure felt at best irrelevant and at worst unnecessarily punitive. The idea was to break us down to build us back up. The thing was, though, we were already pretty broken. There were lots of rules. Lots and lots of rules, and the rules themselves were often enforced by the fellow residents. There was a chain of command with five steps, not to be confused with the twelve steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and the like. Which step you were on indicated your rank. Step one was pre-inpatient. Step two, where I was the majority of my stay, was a person with, essentially, neither rights nor responsibilities. 
One is never allowed to be alone. They must be accompanied at all times by another resident, even if you just need to go to the bathroom, though at least they didn't follow you into the stall, which I had initially feared. If there are any special privileges that you seek, such as the ability to make a phone call if you do not yet have phone privileges or it's outside of regular phone time, even if that phone call is for legal or medical reasons, you have to make an official request and submit it to a step three. If your request or concern is considered valid enough for further consideration, it is then passed on to a step four who has the power to deny or approve your request. Unless it's something more complicated or serious, in which case, it'll have to rise up the ranks again to be either approved or denied by a step five. If they don't have the authority to do anything about it, it then goes to one of your counselors. And they themselves were generally people whose main qualification was that they had completed the program of Portage themselves, which actually does say a lot for their distress tolerance tools, if nothing else. Even if you know it's a matter that needs to be approved by a step four or five or staff, and even if it's a matter that's time-sensitive, you still have to go through the proper channels. And goodness knows how long that'll take, or if the request will even be approved, and whether that approval or denial is based on the resident's particular feelings towards you. And sure, I know that some of these systems were in place to force the newcomers to ask for help, I'm also aware it was supposed to teach us a thing or two about delayed gratification. It was also meant to empower the higher-up ranks and to teach them a thing or two about responsibility. In practice, however, it often served to belittle the lower steps and foster a kind of sense of learned helplessness, particularly in people like me who already suffered from abysmally low self-esteem. It also fostered preferential treatment and abuses of power on the part of the higher ranks. It was easily observable that if you had a very good friend in Step 4, things happened for you a heck of a lot faster. There were some requests, such as some exit requests, that had to be approved by the entire group. And this was, once again, a mechanism that was meant to, in theory, protect a resident from going out if they might be at risk by a community that cared about her well-being. But once again, in practice, things got a little uglier. Even if the group eventually approved a request, if the person making that request wasn't well-liked, well, the pageantry of one woman pleading her case to a whole group of people with concerns could quickly devolve into a spectacle of humiliation. This was excruciating enough for myself and the other lowly initiates, but I believe it was generally more destructive in the long run for the higher ranks. After all, I was used to having very little power or influence. But even when a higher-ranked resident had the best of intentions and didn't abuse their power, they were still given a status that was specific only to the context of the rehab, and having influence over others is, at best, distracting from having influence over oneself, and at worst, setting them up for a rude awakening when they go home to all the unresolved relationships and real-world hierarchies that don't care that you were given the authority to boss around some other junkies for a few weeks. 
The only woman I kept in touch with who completed the program when I was there shared how crushing it was to have had all this respect and responsibility, then still having to start from scratch at home. Her friends and family were actually angered by her attempts to carry over the persona cultivated as the de facto group leader at Portage. She had yet to make any real restitution for years of manipulative, harmful behavior. She confided in me that this contrast, from being head honcho to being, well, herself, made life much harder for her. She couldn't fully uncouple from the status she'd become attached to at the center, and she lacked the humility to find additional support. Unable to make sense of her place in the world, she didn't stay sober all that long. Portage also didn't offer any sort of introduction to 12-step communities or other recovery communities. They did offer a reinsertion program for those who had completed their inpatient. Unfortunately, that was a very small minority of the residents when I was there. Who knows, it could have just been a bad bunch, myself included. But pretty much everybody got kicked out or left well before making it to the hollowed steps four and five. It seemed in my group, most people only stayed to avoid legal consequences. As it was a community therapy, we were expected to learn how to manage our feelings by airing out our grievances with each other multiple times a day, which was coined as taking our feelings with each other. It worked like this. For example, if somebody cut me off in conversation, I was encouraged to approach them later and say, Hey, when you cut me off, I felt disrespected, and I would appreciate if you would try to listen better in the future. The receiver must only say, Thank you for your feedback, and then take a cool-down period so they don't react in the moment. Then they come to you later with their feelings about your feelings, like... I heard you when you said you felt disrespected when I cut you off, and I feel regretful that I made you feel that way, because I like you very much. I will try to be a better listener. So that would be all well and good, but sometimes someone's feelings about another person's feelings would just create more feelings, like, I heard you when you said you felt disrespected when I cut you off. And that made me feel angry, because you cut people off all the time. And maybe I wouldn't have to if anyone else could ever get a word in edgewise. Now, you see, in this example, person B is no longer using feeling words and is using the structure as an opening to air out her frustrations. This will likely regress into a fight, or in person A's tactically planning a seething response, like, I heard you when you said you were angry. When I said that I was disrespected, that you cut me off, and that makes me feel confused, but mostly sad for you because you are clearly too sensitive. It seems you're having a lot of difficulty accepting feedback, and that makes me sad again for you. It is clear how this, especially in a group of women living together, seeing each other for every hour of every day could create a heck of a lot more conflict than it resolved, particularly when we were encouraged to manufacture issues with each other. This is another case in which I can imagine that men post-military 
might need some help communicating their emotions. But a bunch of women living together in close quarters who are already emotionally erratic because of the absence of their drugs and alcohol. I mean, come on. Would you like a can of gasoline for that pile of dry wood? I decided early on that I thought the entire exercise was stupid, as I thought most of the other rules were stupid, and I refused to participate unless I was being harassed into doing so. Even then, I usually just made something up, like, Katie... When you threw your cigarette butt on the ground instead of in the can, I felt annoyed because the rest of us have to follow the rules. I would appreciate if you put your butts in the can in the future. Honestly, I didn't give a shit where Katie put her cigarette butts, but I like to show I knew how to play along even though I wasn't planning on doing so. And once again, I get it. The exercise was, in theory to help us practice dealing with our feelings and minor conflicts before they festered into resentments that we would want to use drugs and alcohol to cope with. But my main resentment was towards all the rules themselves, that I wanted to learn how to stay sober in the real world, not how to tell Genevieve that it pissed me off when she took too long in the shower in the morning. I didn't see how the two were related, because for me, that wasn't why I drank. I drank more because of my relationship with myself. So when I was confronted about not taking my feelings enough, I insisted that I just didn't have any feelings regarding the other resident's behavior. I honestly didn't even think it was a lie at the time, because I wasn't that ruffled by anything anyone did to me. The things that upset me were more indirect. It upset me, for example, when women would have emotional breakdowns because I was unable to tap into my emotions, and I rarely even knew what I was feeling. Was I supposed to say, Katya, I felt uncomfortable when you were crying about not talking to your kids. It was too much for me. It made me self-conscious about my own muddled emotions, and that also, in perspective, I don't have an impressive or tragic backstory, and thus I feel like my feelings don't matter. I would ask that you keep your emotions to yourself in the future because it's interfering with my recovery. See, I don't think that would have made my popularity soar, and it would probably guarantee I'd have a few more residents taking their feelings with me. I was self-conscious about my marks of privilege, like being from a middle-class household and having dropped out of university to come to rehab. The majority of the residents were from rougher backgrounds and had more severe drugs of choice like crack and heroin. I didn't feel entitled to be precious about my emotions, or rather, it felt greedy to even have emotions. The emotions I did experience regularly in regards to the community usually fell into one of two categories, ones that were too vague or embarrassing to be articulated, like feeling separate from everyone, unlikable, broadening my sense of overall alienation, reinforcing my fears of never being accepted and never being understood, The worry that I would always feel that way in any group of people and that alcohol was the only thing that made that feeling manageable and allowed me to fit in. This wasn't a feeling I could just work out with another resident because it wasn't any one individual doing anything to me. 
It just led me to try to find reasons why I felt disconnected, so I would focus on the differences between me and the others, which led to the second category, general resentments. Like in high school, I focused on all the ways I didn't want to be like the people I felt rejected by. I didn't want to be like Karin, who had a meltdown every time she was assigned a chore she didn't like, or was served a meal she didn't like, or was triggered by a topic in group. I didn't want to be like Lauren, who was secretly passing notes with a man on the other side of the rehab, then playing nice when her husband and kids came to visit. I certainly didn't want to be like Chantal, who had fake panic attacks whenever she got called out for breaking rules. There. I didn't want to fit in with these people anyways. I didn't care that they didn't like me because I didn't like them. And yeah, of course, I had absolutely no feelings about the other residents, huh? But even these hostilities didn't fit too well into the therapeutic model on offer. I do regret that I chronicled very little in detail about this time that I could have used as a mediator between me and my venomous memories. There was very little free time in general for reflection, and during our structured journal time I thought it far more important to write poetry about the residents, desperately clinging to my identity as a writer, convincing myself I was just there collecting research, and oh, the stories I would tell when I got out. One of the few journal entries I made reported that I had discovered that sober, I had the personality of a flea. I couldn't blame everyone for not liking me. I didn't like me. I didn't know how to connect with people. Sure, I could blame this on some of the residents being French or our differences in background, but it was me who didn't know how to act. It was me who didn't know who I was. I didn't even look like myself. As one of the most draconian rules was that we were not allowed to put any care into our appearance. Dressing up or doing our hair or any makeup at all was strictly forbidden. And now I can imagine you're thinking, come on now. Not wearing makeup or being able to do your hair all pretty is the most draconian rule in a place where you have to be followed to the bathroom. And it seems trivial. But it was the most pernicious way the center sought to deflate us by controlling how we were allowed to present ourselves. I've worn makeup almost every day of my life since I was 14. People can think what they want about me and what that says about my values, my vanity, my insecurities, the patriarchal oppression I've internalized, but the fact of the matter is putting on a bit of makeup was as necessary for me before leaving the house as putting on clothes. Without it, I felt exposed and vulnerable. I actually would have preferred if I was forced to walk around topless. I was already being asked to give up my main line of defense, alcohol, and how I presented myself was, and remains, a way I feel in control of myself, and a way I feel good about myself, a signal to myself and others that I'm doing okay, and this isn't a bad thing. To me, it's a form of self-care. The only times in my life I've not worn makeup or otherwise tended to my appearance was when I was suicidal or crippled with withdrawal, or grieving, or too sick to manage, or in rehabs that told me how I was allowed to look. And looking crummy is something I associate with giving up, not having any desire for self-care, depression, sickness. 
It was an emotional regulation tool I didn't feel like they had a right to take from me because it wasn't my worst one. Of course, if I was spending an hour in front of a mirror contouring every morning, that would be another matter. But being told that caring about my appearance was a sin in some way, that my values were wrong, it felt like an overstep. And it only served to further cripple me socially. The first evening there, I felt so self-conscious. We had beets with our shepherd's pie, and I covertly wrapped the beets in my napkin into my pocket, hoping I could keep them as a kind of rouge substitute. I hid them with as much fervor as I would have if they were smuggled alcohol. But to my dismay, I found the next day they had dried out, all their glorious staining power having bled out into the napkin and my favorite pair of jeans. Magenta was never really my color anyways. I did get reprimanded for wearing a few too many clips in my hair that appeared decorative and not functional, and dressing a bit too colorfully. Luckily, I learned my lesson and gave up before I was branded with punitive humiliation tactics. Yes, uh, punitive humiliation tactics were on the table. One woman, Kelsey, made the cardinal sin of dressing a little too nicely, and occasionally even blowing out her hair, dear God. She was taken to the center second-hand clothing outlet, which was made up mostly of abandoned clothes of residents who had fled and never returned to collect their belongings. There, a counselor and a higher-up resident chose ill-fitting and unflattering clothing that she was told to wear exclusively until she learned her lesson. I remember her coming to breakfast in oversized men's overalls and a dated floral blouse underneath, and the other residents cackled well. That'll show her. That'll take her down a notch. But I was horrified. How many more notches were we expected to go down? See, Kelsey was one of the most well-adjusted residents there. She was genuinely kind to everybody. She followed all of the rules. She was slightly higher up than me, and she took her responsibility seriously without being a jerk about it. I actually strongly disliked her for these reasons, as she represented that someone could get along well in this place that I thought was my own personal living hell. And when I saw that she, too, who seemed to be doing the best anyone could manage in that environment, was still subject to these seemingly arbitrary punishments... These jabs at our dignity, well, that's when I kind of checked out. The whole thing felt like a zero-sum game. I'd keep my head down and go through the motions. I'd suffer through my punishment until it was over. Because I had indeed been bad, so I suppose I deserved it. Okay, so that wraps up that part of that chapter. And okay, I know I do react to things kind of dramatically. Guilty as charged. However, the institution did strike me as having a very moralizing, punitive, war-on-drugs, addict-as-depraved criminal who requires reform as its overarching philosophy. And I guess I just thought we were over that as a society. But I also didn't know enough about different models of addiction to know that it wasn't the only one. And sure, there are some holes in the disease model as well, but 
I like that a hell of a lot better than a philosophy that inspires shame. See, I think regret can be a useful emotion. It can inspire you to make better choices and think about your future self and the regrets you don't want that person to have. But shame... See, the problem with shame is that it's not saying you did a bad thing. It's saying you are bad. And if I already think I'm bad, then what's to stop me from doing bad things? Because that's what bad people do. I can never know completely if it was more of a me thing or more of a problem with the program. But there were a lot of techniques that inspired shame in me. It made me feel that as an alcoholic, I deserve to be punished. And I carried that with me for a long time. That being an addict, I was somehow subhuman and didn't deserve the same rights as other people. I had forfeited those rights with one too many bottles of vodka. But you know, I didn't stay the full six months. I did leave after three, and I'll get into that more in the next episode. But maybe I have it all wrong. Maybe a lot of it was just a projection of how I felt inside. A lot of my listeners are based in Montreal, so if any of you have been to Portage and can tell me a nicer story of what that experience was like, or maybe somebody knows somebody who was very much helped by that institution, I'd really like to know about it. I would really like to be wrong. See, the thing with a memoir is one's memories are notoriously unreliable. But the main message I think I internalized was that being sober meant being miserable. And it was very much about doing penance. And it's also very possible I was just far too precious for the program that they had. There is no one-size-fits-all model for recovering from addiction. Otherwise, everyone would just do it. The magic portal would be real. And once again, I would love to hear your feedback, whether or not it's related to Portage or any other institution. Maybe you have your own wacky rehab story I could insert for some levity. Like a member of the Facebook group shared that in his rehab, the residents were encouraged to go into the woods and scream at night to vent their emotions. Therapeutic enough, I'm sure, but it doesn't seem like a practice you could carry into your regular life with much ease. Also, if the show has value to you and you're in a position to be generous, there's a donate button to the PayPal in the show notes. Doing this thing does take up a fair amount of my time, and every bit helps. So, whether you're an addict or not, or whether you've done some things in your life that you regret, I hope you don't feel like you deserve less out of life. I had a hell of a lot more to offer than I knew, and I know that you too have so much more to offer the world than you even know. Until next time...